Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. When California Governor Gavin Newsom wanted to assemble a task force on business and jobs recovery for the state, he turned to some usual suspects. Tim Cook of Apple is on the task force, and so is Bob Iger of Disney and former Fed Chair Janet Yellen. But right toward the top of the alphabetical list of 80-some-odd prominent Californians is a Jesuit priest and my guest today, Father Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. If you're not familiar with Homeboy's work of empowerment and kinship with former gang members, you really have to pick up copies of Father Greg's two memoirs, which are both spiritual instant classics, Tattoos on the Heart and Barking to the Choir. I asked Father Greg about what messages he wants to bring to the governor's task force and how he and Homeboy have been navigating this crazy time when their in-person ministry of compassion has been shaken up. If you like what you hear, you can tell your friends to subscribe to AMDG wherever they listen to podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father Greg Boyle, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be with you. How have uh, you been navigating this this kind of turbulent this turbulent time? You holding up okay? Yeah, I live uh, here in a house of seven Jesuits. Uh, two of us are geezers, you know, and and uh, at least me with an underlying uh, health thing uh, that I have leukemia. But but I'm good. I feel fine, though. I think uh, uh, you know people get a little hyper vigilant about the geezers anyway so and that's fine and then we've been staying in contact uh, with uh you know the homies and our trainees um you know hours of texting uh all day and then uh emails and then uh, all our case managers and navigators are staying in touch with folks uh by zoom meetings there are recovery groups there's tutoring there's anger management classes, uh, exercise classes, art classes. So everybody's pretty um, well occupied, uh, even as they're staying home and uh, taking care of their kids, which is uh, adds to the challenge of it all. But we're doing okay. It's been a lot. We had hoped to open on Monday, the 18th, but I, I, I'm thinking uh, L.A. County has just uh, put a kibosh on that, so we'll have to that's what my meetings are about today to figure out what's our next step. Sure. Yeah, I know. I had seen that that news uh, that L.A. County was extending the stay at home order for at least another few months. And you were getting at some of the, the questions I, I had for you, just thinking about kind of what, what Homeboy's mission is and uh, thinking of a line from uh, your book, Barking to the Choir, that Homeboy receives people. It doesn't rescue them. It receives people. How do you receive people? How do you build kinship when it's uh, you're, it's hard to be in person, or at least not in the same way that you were. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, certainly Homeboy is a very tactile place. So people hug each other 93 times a day, and it's just <laughs> sort of how we are. And sure. now that's kind of changed. You know, we are uh, kind of, uh, when I've seen homies, it's a very six-foot distant namaste sort of bowing. I bow to the divine in you, and 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 you get it back, but it's kind of not the same. So everybody comes to Homeboy, all all gang members come, you know, barricaded behind a wall of shame, and only tenderness can scale that wall. 
And now we need to find a way to be tender uh, that isn't tactile. Uh, sometimes it isn't even in the physical presence of each other. So whereas it's a challenge, I think we've, we've found a renewed tenderness, you know, and uh, people are also, you know, finding the joy there is in cherishing each other in a different way. So uh, it's been remarkably healing for as uncertain as these times are, it's, uh, I've been kind of astonished by it. You know, how many text messages I get from homies who are, I just want to know how you're doing. And you can feel that in that, in the exercise of being loving and centered in the other, that people are finding their peace and their consolation. So uh, go figure, it's allowed folks to really, all of us to inhabit our best selves which is a good sign for uh, our country, I think. Yeah, and I, I have wondered about that, right? Because when you're thinking about this time and, you know, I, even my, my own life, we're connect, my wife and I are connecting with friends who we might not have spoken to before or maybe in, in more touch with our family even. Um, but then we're also kind of, you see in the news or feel in yourself like this temptation to just like, you know, take that isolation that's happening physically and like to say, you know, we need to, we need to protect ourselves first, protect ourselves in our own. Like there's, there's some temptation to almost more isolationism. So I could see like, again, solidarity and kinship on one hand, or this kind of move toward like even more suspicion and, and fear of the other on the other. So how, how do you feel? Again, you're not, a, not asking to predict the future, but like, what can we do to make sure that we're moving toward more solidarity and kinship and, and less isolationism? Yeah. The, the interesting thing is I think you look to the heroic essential workers virtually all these people were, we didn't see them before. We ignored them. They were maybe even dismissed or disparaged, but they kind of didn't exist. And now they're heroic, essential workers. So then that, that kind of levels things. And suddenly none of us are safe and protected until all of us are safe and protected. And it just like there was a campaign here in LA before the pa pandemic uh, sponsored by the LA County uh, Mental Health Department. It said, none of us are well until all of us are well. And it's a way of saying, you, we won't be able to isolate because your safety protection and well-being is dependent on our solidarity. So oddly, I'm kind of hopeful that that we we won't return to a normal that was chaotic and inequitable and uh, created a huge gulf between the haves and the have-nots. So the solution is, uh, you know, to those who have more than they need is to, as they say, build a longer table rather than a higher wall. And I'm hopeful that that's going to happen, actually. I, I, um, you know, I'm on this uh, state task force, and I'm kind of heartened by uh, the leadership of the governor and, and the language that everybody uses, which is equity-driven equality. It's about solutions that, that are imbued with an equity-driven equality. 
So it's it's the talk anyway is about uh, imagining a circle of compassion and then imagining nobody standing outside that circle. So I find it a kind of heartening that uh, everybody wants to create not a new normal, but a, a way better than normal. Yeah, and I did... Uh, I asked you on uh, this time because of that uh, that news about this, this governor's task force to reopen the economy. And I was looking at the roster of people on that that long task force, and you have um, presidential uh, candidate uh, Tom Steyer who's on there. You have um, you have Tim Cook from Apple on there. You have Priscilla Chan Zuckerberg from Facebook and their philanthropy, and then you have Father Greg Boyle um, <laughs> on that long list. So, what what is what voice? What messages do you want to bring to make sure that um, those people in power and leadership are are hearing uh, from you in particular? Yeah, there there are eighty of us, so there's seventy nine who are exceedingly successful, uh, prominent people, and then there's <laughs> me. Uh, uh, Governor Newsom said at, in his opening remarks to us, this is the most impressive gathering since Thomas Jefferson died alone. And I think he stole that from uh, John F. Kennedy. But the, um, right. and so these are, you know, uh, good hearted people. But I mean, I think right now, you know, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. We're about to finalize budgets. Uh, you know, in the state and the county and the city. And so, as we both know, budgets are moral documents. And so, and it's a time, really, to kind of say those who have more than they need and corporations and the wealthy really do have to contribute more than they have been. And I don't know any way around that. And and yet, I, again, I feel... Uh, you know, like the 1% are utterly dependent on these heroic essential workers. And so um, there is self-interest in kind of saying, well, we're going to do this differently. Um, you need to tax us to a greater extent, and we need to contribute more corporations and philanthropy. And so, you know, we're, we're at a, a moment, I think, that could... Uh, really issue in something quite prophetic and far-reaching. And, and this, could, this could really alter how we live and how we see each other. So I'm hopeful. Well, because, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, we're, we're seeing kind of through this that a lot of those inequalities that were there, things maybe we weren't paying as much attention to, those have been revealed, like the racial disparities in, in the country, you know, have been revealed. The fact that when people are losing their job, they're often going to be losing health insurance, like the healthcare system's brokenness has been revealed. A lot of these things that have always been there, things that maybe your entire ministry has been kind of pointing at and working to heal, uh, are now kind of more uh, on the surface, maybe more in our awareness um, every day. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the truth of the matter is, you know, the disparity in inequity existed before the pandemic. But now we can recognize that poor people of color are disproportionately being impacted by the pandemic. And so it indeed it doesn't just illuminate this disparity, it's exacerbating it as well. And so 
you know, we get to a point where we can say rich white, the rich white curve is indeed flattening, but the poor darker curve is on the rise and none of us are well safe or protected unless all of us are. And so that's an exciting challenge, I think, for people. Uh, and, I th and I think even as an organizer, don't, appe don't appeal to people's conscience. Appeal to their goodness. And I think people have responded. I mean, I was kind of blown away by this uh, Giving Tuesday now. You know, it always comes up. And here we're in a time where maybe people will do what you suggest build the wall higher, isolate more, I need to, uh, you know, you know, uh, take, you know, stack my shelves filled with toilet paper so nobody else gets it. It's kind of a hoarding mentality. We, you think that's going to happen. But every nonprofit had this incredible experience of people were three times more generous than anybody anticipated. I think that's a sign, you know, at a time when people, you would think people would, would withdraw and say, not this time. And, and like three times what anybody expected to get. So I, I'm hopeful that, that this has been kind of an equalizer, that people kind of are experiencing this as, as an invitation to kinship and connection and relational wholeness. And how ironic that is because we're all in our homes by ourselves and yet something remarkable is happening. I've seen, so in your, your writing, your speaking, and I imagine then that will continue in this task force, a large part of your ministry has been bringing stories of, of people on the margins who have been uh, affected, uh, sharing those stories, empowering people you work with to share their own story. Um, so what, what are some of those stories that you're hearing? What are you hearing from some of those communities that have been disproportionately affected? What, what are on people's minds and hearts uh, when you're getting those text messages or calls uh, from people kind of in the, uh, the homeboy community? Well, you know, uh, some of our trainees have uh, had to bury their parents who died of the virus. And, and when I say had to bury, they, they haven't buried yet. They haven't because it's, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, we had a couple who um, parents were in, um, you know, convalescent homes. So, A, they couldn't visit them before. They couldn't be there when their parent died. And now uh, funerals are kind of weird, you know, and uh, and difficult. Um, and then, you know, I I have you know three homies who have the virus, and uh, and it's hard because they have kids, and it's hard to isolate, and um, you know they they can't go to their you know basement uh, private uh, you know little studio while the family lives upstairs. You know, it's uh, social, physical distancing is hard for the poor. You know, people drive to certain parts of the city and you see lots of people outside and people can judge that. But it's because if you have nine people living in a living room, yeah, it's hard. Uh, you know, physical distancing is a challenge for the poor. And yet another reason why uh, 
you know, poor communities of color are impacted disproportionately. But, um, you know, the homies who have it, have the virus who text me are, and, uh, and I try to reach out to them as best I can. And, and, and we as a community try to get groceries to them and that kind of thing still is a challenge. But, but their spirits are, they're kind of remarkably resilient, which I think, frankly, is a testament to, to how people come to Homeboy and they, they heal and they, you know, Homeboy is never very interested in uh, surviving as the fittest, but uh, thriving as the nurtured. And, and these are the nurtured. These are folks who've had the a palpable experience of having been cherished and they have all found their way to the joy there is in cherishing others and that's healing and and in a time like this especially with the ones who have the virus they're kind of good-spirited and uh hopeful and anchored in their true selves and loving so it's uh it's kind of remarkable to to be observing of it in some ways, it sounds like uh, folks have been training who have to be connected with you training for this in some ways, like building up these habits of of compassion and or feeling cherished, as you said, and being able to cherish others. So when things become challenging, there's some real foundation uh, to act from. And again, thinking about like this, this idea of like not wanting just to go back to the way things were, but to kind of imagine a different way. Uh, the One of the words you use over and over again, when you're kind of thinking about what, what you're after at Homeboy is, is kinship, this idea of radical kinship in which everyone is included in this circle of compassion. When you're thinking about the, the economy locally or beyond, if, if, the, if our economy were characterized by like 10 or 20 times more kinship than it's characterized by today. Uh, what, what might that look like? What are some of the, the things you think we might, we might start to see? Well, you know, it's uh, not to get political here, but, you know, say uh, Bernie Sanders' agenda, especially for universal health care and lots of other things, were seen a different way prior to the pandemic. And now people view something like that in a wholly different way. So you start to say, yeah, in, in a kind of a, a universal just wage uh, and, and good jobs that transform communities and, and access to all the things that enhance the quality of our lives, you know, healthcare, education, and opportunities. So this is a whole new world. And what seemed foreign or weird or socialist you know, prior to the pandemic, is now feeling quite sensible to people. Yeah, we need a safety net. Yes, we need to have a special preferential care for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. All biblical notions that are, uh, you know, haven't risen to this, uh, this moment until this moment. And I think that's kind of remarkable. And and in the same way, you know, the homies come to Homeboy and they're healed and they come to terms with what was done to them and they've come to terms with what they've done and then they re-identify who they are in the world and then they, they find that they're exactly what God had in mind when God made them and then they leave us and the world will throw at them what it will like it is right now. 
but this time they won't be toppled. And so I'm hopeful that even this pandemic will lead us to a place where we start to look at mass incarceration, for example. So I think something like the decarceration movement um, suddenly has legs, oddly, during this time of the pandemic, because we start to say, what are we doing? Why would we return to that? And and right now, you know, uh, I, I go say mass, used to anyway, at all these probation detention facilities. So we've just had three of them closed down. So they're releasing people. They're, they're rethinking, how do we do this? You know, 5,000 people have been released from uh, our jails and our prisons in the last two months. So, I, and I don't even know how to explain that exactly, that, that it was in fact the pandemic that led us to uh, rethink how we did these other things that may seem unrelated, but because they're connected to uh, uh, wholeness, a mystical view, if you will, it, to see the world as a mystic, as Jesus did, then you see the wholeness in people and you say, well, we should have equity. And why are we punishing wounded people? And all these questions that that maybe wouldn't have come up if this pandemic hadn't hit us. Yeah, I think about, in some ways, the creativity that becomes possible or when you have these restrictions, right? Things have changed, can't just go on with business as normal. So it feels restricting, but like within that restriction, a chance to do new things, to kind of abandon some, whether it's just like, again, a habit that you had or a routine, you, okay, that has to be changed. So now there's some creativity that's required. Have you seen kind of homeboy, like kind of living into that, like thinking of creative ways to respond uh, in this time? Yeah, you know, so every nonprofit who wants to survive uh, frankly, has to pivot. And so, you know, we have a huge kitchen and a huge bakery. So we, we still have uh, customers, maybe 50%, we're operating at 50% of our bakery in terms of com uh, customers and shipping things, cookies and breads and stuff. But we've turned the cafe now into, uh, we have lots of contracts uh, with city and county to to uh, address you know, food insecurity. So we're preparing thousands and thousands of meals every day for uh, you know, seniors and uh, first responders and all sorts of sources uh, where we have these contracts to, uh, and beyond city and county, you know, we've also have been connected to other organizations who, who uh, again, want to address the food insecurity, which is only go going to worsen. So that's kind of our pivot. Plus, you know, we've been making masks, not making masks, but printing masks uh, in, in the hope that that will, uh, since everyone's going to need one now. So, yeah, the pivot was sort of essential, and I'm, I'm glad we did it kind of full-heartedly. What is your, your vision for the next year or two or who knows? Or what was your vision for where Homeboy was headed and has it been affected or do you still feel like you're, you're on track toward a, toward a healthy growth or whatever you think uh, the best way to go is for, for Homeboy these times? Well, I don't know. It's more of the same, you know, but uh, we're kind of the only game in town 
in terms of returning citizens, you know, there there isn't a gang member, for example, or felon of the 120,000 gang members, for example, in LA County, who, who doesn't know where we are uh, and what we're what we do and what we're about. They they all know that, and so we're the place to come to. You know, right now they're they're coming to us by way of texting me, hey, I just got out. And so we try to help them as best we can in the interim. And then at some point we will open in a very modified way and and continue to to help people. But a lot of our services are, you know, like tattoo removal. We just had to shut that down. And we have nine businesses, and at this point, four of them are are up and running you know, greatly diminished, but running. But, you know, like our restaurant at the airport and our diner at the city hall, those are closed. And so it's, it's uh, tough, but, you know, we expect to have the volume. So we, we hope that as we rethink society and our response to things, that people will see the value that it's, it's one thing to release people from prison but it's another thing to have something there that a safety net of some kind that will catch them. And, and that's who we are. So my, my hope is that uh, people will see the value of that and fund it. I'm wondering, as we're drawing to an, an end of our conversation, if you'd be willing to share anything from your own prayer and reflection these days, things you've been reading, thoughts that have kind of stayed with you, uh, anything that's kind of uh, fresh for you now in your your own prayer and reflection. Well, you know it's funny uh, you do things that you just would never do. You know, so uh, like for example, uh, you know, every other Thursday I, I'm in a book group with all these professor types, and we're reading Brothers Karamazov, which I've never read before, which reminds you that uh, education is wasted on the young. Uh, because I, I couldn't imagine reading this when I was 20, but at 65, it's quite a rich experience. And then every Tuesday night, last night, I, I, there's a small group of us, six of us, uh, homie, you know, homies, and uh, they wanted to just go through uh, Mark's gospel. And it's not me teaching, it's everyone takes a chapter and we, we discuss it, and it's fascinating, very moving, and and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, deepening a sense of, you know, the mystical view of Jesus, again, is to see the whole person. And, and one of the homies uh, was saying that, uh, you know, kind of commenting on sort of outlandish behavior on the part of another homie. And, and he says, you know, you, you have to reach underneath and find the thorn which is, is a mystical way of seeing. And, and somehow that's how you get to joy, uh, where you can stand in awe at, at what folks have to carry, rather than judgment, which is very key for this moment, because, uh, you know, frankly, we're all struck by this, but we're not impacted in the same way. And so once you can kind of say, Wow, imagine everybody living in this roof, under this roof, with all these kids. Or our trainees who are used to providing one meal a day 
to their kids because schools are closed and now they have to provide three meals a day and and they haven't been able to do that and they can ill afford to do it so you you stand in awe and you keep judgment away and it 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 calls you to some kind of uh, uh generosity that uh last night in this uh, uh scripture group the homies really you know called that forth in me and and then you allow yourself to be changed and to be reached and have your heart altered by folks at the margins it's uh it, it's it's doesn't get better than that i don't think well father greg boyle thanks again so much for joining me on amdg and, and thanks for your ministry and, and uh you know of our prayers for you and for uh, all you're working with there a pleasure being with you thank you very much AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. (laughs) 